Please note, this episode contains discussion of sexual assault. Listener discretion is advised. If this topic raises any issues for you, please refer to the contacts listed in the description. You know, and I just knew that if I had my drum kit, I would be okay. And the day came when I decided I was going back to the school. And I actually stopped off at St Stephen's Cathedral and I lit a candle and I made a vow that I'll never speak about this, ever. But the, the reality of it was, playing was like therapy. I would be carried away. I wasn't that damaged girl. I was somebody else on the wings of the music, miles away, soaring. If you've never been in a room with today's guest, then make sure you put it on your list. Joe Lynham is a force to be reckoned with and has an amazing story of courage, trauma, triumph and overcoming stereotypes. In this first part of our chat, we talk about the forces and events that shaped Joe into the incredible person that she is today. The Community Information Centre acknowledges and pays respects to the Woolgarugaba and Bindal people, the traditional owners of the land where this podcast was recorded. Thank you for coming in. Um, I'm halfway through your book and I've been really, really eager um, and waiting for it to come out from when I first met you and your story. And I, um, I think you have a really awesome story because you've been through a really challenging time and you could have given up multiple times. Yeah. So can, you, um, can we start with, with you? Can sure. we start with where did you grow up? So I grew up in Mount Isa. I was actually born out in Mount Isa. Um, pretty sort of ordinary kind of childhood for a, a person of my age, I suppose. Um, my needs were basically taken care of, but um, it, it wasn't what I would describe as a great loving family. And when you um, reached your teenage years and finished school, you were into music, or you yeah. grew up around music, didn't you? No, I, I didn't actually grow up around music. But um, I can remember clearly, I would have been about four and we were at the golf club for a function. And as was the case in those days, mum and dad had a blanket and pillows and kind of went, that's time for you to go to bed. You and your brother lie down under the table. But I was mesmerised all night by the bed. I had those days where I had to sit under the table too, yeah. <laughs> on a blanket. But I couldn't sleep because I was watching the drummer and fascinated by everything that he was doing. And I had this really clear, like, I'm going to play drums. And I held on to that all through my life. Even though um, when I raised it, my mum and dad said, don't be silly, girls don't play drums. And, and of course I kept saying it. And then I got to be, oh, it must have been about 15. And uh, for a birthday, I got a guitar. It's like, great, but I still want to play drums. I didn't let it go because I knew there was something I wanted to explore. It was something I wanted to do. It was more than just a want. It felt like um, a drive. So when I had the opportunity, um, it's just one of those, you know, kind of fortuitous moments in your life when everything just kind of lines up just right. We happened to be in Brisbane on a family holiday and uh, I had a cousin who was learning to play drums and he said, oh, come along with me. I've got a lesson next week. So I did and I met his teacher and he could see I was really keen. And so he said, well, there's a drum kit out the back if you want to come in tomorrow or show some things and you can practice. And the end of the day, he was gobsmacked to find I was still there 
when the school was closing. I was still practising. And then he would show me some more things. So I spent the entire holiday in that little back room, banging away, getting these things right. Did your parents know that you were doing Oh, yeah, mum and yeah. dad knew. But I think mum and dad thought, oh, well, at least she'll get it out of a system. Yeah, she'll have this, you know, let's just let her do it. She'll get it out of a system. She'll, she'll realise this is not something she can do. But what they didn't know was that um, each day a teacher would come back to the back room and go, that's really good. And it, as it was coming to the end of the, the family holiday, he said, you know, how serious are you? You could win a scholarship. I said, absolutely, what do I got to do? But what I actually had to do was really quite difficult because in order to be even eligible for the scholarship, I had to be at level two standard. Now, I'd never picked up a theory book in my life. I didn't know a crotchet from a quaver from anything, you know. A semitone is what? <laughs> I didn't know. But um, it's amazing if you really have a drive what you can achieve because I used to travel up on the bus and on the train because I was staying with my grandmother in Margate. So I had a lot of traveling. He said, let's put that time to good use. So he used to record the theory into a cassette and I would listen to it and read it and test myself. And every evening my grandmother would test me on the theory and just yeah, continued. So my days were practicing scales and he'd come out and listen and go, yep, you need to get a little quicker, go a little quicker to be up to that level, go a little quicker, go a little quicker. And I just, yeah, just that drive of a 17-year-old, I can do it. And I did. I got to um, level two and got the scholarship, which was, which was for a year's study. So, of course, when I put myself in my parents' position now as a parent, that must have been terrifying to leave your 16-and-a-half-year-old, almost 17-year-old daughter in a big city and drive thousands of miles back home and leave me there, you know. But... There was no way. Once I'd got the scholarship, they were... I they guess, were going to stop you. So, yeah, they were. They were not going to stop you. Yeah, I mean, they we'd had discussions about it and um, for them it was, well, okay, we'll go home, you can have a crack at the scholarship, but it's unlikely you'll get it. And so we agreed. You don't get the scholarship and then we send the airfare and you come home. Agreed. But I knew I was going to get the scholarship. I just knew it. I'm going to get that. Do you feel like it was almost um, they were trying to let you go into the water to fail? So yeah, they yeah. could say, see, told yeah. you so. Yeah. And then when I actually got it and I rang them and said, guess what? I got the scholarship. I passed with 89%. I'm staying. And there was deafening silence <laughs> on the phone. I mean, deafening. <laughs> and then, anyway, so my parents said, well, we'll have a talk and, and we'll ring you back tonight. <laughs> Talk, schmalk, whatever. What's their know? next strategy? <laughs> and so they rang back and said, well, okay, you've got 12 months. At the end of the 12 months, that's it. You come home. And I remember saying to them, no, I, I want to go as far as I can go with this. And so the obvious choice was, of course, to play um, in the industry that I was studying in. So, um, so that's what I did. I started to play in little bands and, yeah, scraped by. <laughs> Literally through. like a starving musician. Yeah. <laughs> but I got, you know, you don't notice that when you're young. You just notice the excitement, or I did. Yeah, I had a real drive for it and I absolutely loved it. I loved to play. You sound like you were born a positively stubborn yeah. woman. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's a perfect description. <laughs> you sound stubborn, but in a positive way, like no yeah. one was going to stop you. Yeah. And you were you went through this, and this was a great time in your life, and it was um, you were doing what you wanted to do. 
But in the same sense, when you were going through your music career and your drumming, it was also a pivotal, negatively changing yeah. part of your life. It was. It was. Yeah. Very. Yeah. I mean, in choosing to to play and to keep myself, that's going to be the way I make my living. Um, I just remembering, you know, I'd come from Mount Isa, pretty naive kind of upbringing, never had a boyfriend, so I never really dealt with boys. And here I am in a school full of males who are somewhat challenged by a female, but that was nothing to what you faced in the industry itself. The industry itself was very male dominated in the 70s. So a girl turning up to play, you know, for a casual gig with a band was like, what? You're just a bit of a slip of a girl, love. That was what I heard all the time, love. Love. Yeah, and so eventually um, my, my teacher helped me and we came up with a strategy that I would take my name off the drum kit, which used to have Joanne on the front of it. So we took that off, just had a plain head. So instead of turning up when the band turned up, I would turn up hours before, long before them, set my gear up and leave. Then I would just come back and wait for them to arrive, knowing they're going to be sweating, wondering where the drummer is, and they're looking at me at the bar, not even beginning to imagine that I'm going to be their drummer. <laughs> you know. And so the ploy was that I would then go up and say, hi, I'm Joe. Yeah, yeah. Look, we're about to start, love. Yes, and you're going to need me to start because I'm your drummer. What? I still heard the same thing. But by then I had a strategy that would say, I would say something like, um, well, I'll tell you what, got to kick off in about two minutes. Don't think the publican's going to be too happy if we're late. How about you let me play the first bracket? If you're not happy, I'll go home and I'll get you another drummer. And I never got sent home after that. Um, but I was playing one particular Saturday night for a wedding and it was at a football club. Um, this particular band were not particularly friendly. Some would invite me to sit with the band. This band did not. Just prior to this happening, um, the school that I studied in, we had produced a record and on the A side. Um, in, in those days, I performed on the A side, a solo, and on the B side was the school ensemble. So there was a couple of television appearances to promote the record and there was a story in a newspaper. So that story came out I think on the Wednesday and this was a Saturday night when I was playing and there were some guys there at the bar who recognised me from the news story and said, oh, you know, you're the little drummer girl, which is how I was described in the story. And I said, yes. And so they were initially very inquisitive but as the night got on they were um, much more pushy and trying to insist that I take a drink from them, um, wanting to know personal details. I pretended I had a boyfriend who would be turning up any minute. So something in you was saying, oh, something this isn't in me safe. was terrified, yeah. And as the night drew to a, to a close, I felt um, an inherent fear, concern, a worry about those three men. Now, at that young age, could, have art, uh, could I have articulated that? Probably not. I just felt fearful. So I said to the guys in the band, hey, look, my car's right out the back and I couldn't get a park close. Can you just hang on till I get my gear out? And the bass player just, <laughs> yeah, he was so typical of the time and said, what's the matter, doll? Are you scared of the dark? Packing up's all part of it. That's why girls can't play drums. So I thought, okay, fine. So I started to get my gear out and it, I couldn't take it all out in one go because it was a big eight piece kit 
plus all the symbol stands and all the rest of it. So I'm in the process of trying to get it into the car when those three guys appeared in the dark at the back of the car park, early hours of the morning. So in the car park, I was raped and beaten by those guys badly to the point where I was, I woke up, I don't know exactly when, some hours later, undressed with my clothes scattered and my drum kit. And all I cared about was my drum kit. In the car park? Mm. My drum kit was, there were bits and pieces and that's all I cared about. And the most insane thing, trying to put my torn clothes back on, which when I look back, it's like, well, why would you bother? It's clearly shock, you know. That was um, obviously a life-changing event to happen to me, but it took about six, from memory, I think six, seven, maybe eight weeks before the bruising and obvious things on my face and neck went down. So I wasn't going back to the school until that had subsided because I, I didn't want to talk about this. And you didn't I, report it? No, I didn't because one of those guys actually threatened to come to the school and get me. We know where you are. So I was beside myself terrified. And one of the lasting memories I have of that night, which still, still to this day, all these years later, as a 60 odd year old woman, still haunts me is the sound of my own voice pleading with them. Don't hurt me, don't hurt me. That still haunts me. And my father's words, his last words to me in a conversation when I refused to come home were, Joe, you're a good girl. Good girls don't play drums, come home. And I, for the longest time, I could not get past my father's words. I just couldn't. And I felt that I was in some way responsible for what had happened to me, that um, I felt broken. I felt just crushed. But there was a part of me that just refused to buckle because I would be sitting at my grandmother's, you know, crying, not able to sleep, spending hours and still in the not have told anyone. No, no. And still, the strangest thing was, I was longing to play, you know. And I just knew that if I had my drum kit set up at Grandma's, which I just couldn't kind of get myself to do for a few weeks, I would be okay. And the day came when I decided I was going back to the school. I packed my gear into the car and I went back to the school and I actually stopped off at St Stephen's Cathedral and I lit a candle and as I lit that candle I made a vow that I'll never speak about this ever. I will get on with my life, I'll finish my music studies and I will not talk of this ever. And it was a very long time and I did go back to the school, I did continue to study but the, the reality of it was playing was like therapy. If everybody had left the school I put the, the stereo, sit down behind my kit and just play. And I would be carried away. I wasn't the girl that was raped. I wasn't that damaged girl. I was somebody else on the wings of the music, miles away, soaring. And then of course you'd finish and be like, no, it did happen, it's still there. It would be there in my dreams, it was there in my, of a daytime, I would see their faces everywhere, it was just, and ultimately it got to the point where I was, you know, joked earlier about being a starving musician, but I had got to that point because I was knocking work back because I was afraid. 
and and you couldn't tell anyone why no yeah yeah I couldn't tell anybody why I couldn't take that job you know but I knew the situation that I would be in with it so I ultimately decided I would take a break from music and went home and thought you know I'll I'll get my act together it'll be different when I go home this won't go home with me somehow I kind of felt like it wouldn't follow me but of course it did followed me everywhere it's like um like a shadow that's with you 24 7 you get up with it and there it is you go to bed there it is and it's there all the time but their faces I still see their faces I can remember their faces yeah yeah so did your parents notice a change in you when you came home then yes they did um my mother assumed at the time that um, because I'd been in the music industry that I was obviously a drug addict and that that was the change in my behaviour, um, which of course it wasn't. I hadn't touched alcohol and I, well, that's not true. I did occasionally drink, but I hadn't done too much in the way of drugs. I did some. I was young after all. <laughs> but um, yeah, they did notice a difference. And I did try to talk to my mother once about what had happened. And she just said, oh, don't be ridiculous, Joanne. She said, that that wouldn't happen. And she never wanted to hear about it or talk about it again. Because so. we didn't back then, did we? No, so it was never discussed again. Mm. When did you meet your husband? I met my husband when I was go- at home in Mount Isa, when I was uh, just going home to kind of get my act together and get some money and buy a better car because my car had fallen apart. And so I, I took a job with him, I am, and I met him one morning. How did that impact you dating then and meeting after what had happened to you? It had a huge impact. I had not gone anywhere with on a date um, with a single man at all. I had There was a group of us and they all had male friends and there were some what we call straggler males, but I never went out with any one of them. And initially when I met Greg, it was always we went out as a group. So there was the girls from work and there was a whole group of the guys. So we were always out as a group until one night he asked me out for tea. And I can remember asking him lots of questions about how we'd get there and, and you know, where we'd park and what we... Yeah, and of course he had no idea why I was so neurotic about those kinds of things. But ultimately, obviously, I did, t- did tell my husband. That conversation came not long before he asked me to marry him. We were out one night and there was a sense in me that I should feel vulnerable in this situation here. We are alone, we're, you know, but I don't. I feel I can trust this man. I felt safe with him. I felt like I wasn't vulnerable with him. And um, I sensed that he was going to ask me to marry him. And it was a few weeks prior to that that we had been at the Irish club one night and he'd gone to the bar with a friend and as he and his mate were walking back and as he walked towards me, I thought, oh, yeah, I'm going to marry him. So I kind of sensed he was going to ask me and when he did, I, I thought, well, I need to, he needs to know the whole deal here of what he is asking and who this person is. You know, because at the time I thought, you know, he had a right to know that he was asking damaged goods to marry him was how I saw myself yeah, as right. damaged goods was how I saw myself yes. for such a long time that there was nothing good about me that this one thing had ruined everything about me took a long yeah. time for me to realize well I was more going to describe it as a conversation of 
opening the door to to let him know what's behind it. Mm. Yeah, and he's never. This is also a part of me yeah. now. He has never ever seen me in the way that for many years I saw myself. He never had that view of me, and was and still is only ever been um, respectful and understanding mm. always. Yeah, because there's triggers then that come with yeah. that experience, isn't there? Yeah, it's lots it could of be them. the slightest sound, yeah, word. Yeah, sometimes it is. Sometimes I can go for years and not be triggered by anything and see things in a movie and it still won't trigger me. But there will be something that someone says. Smell. And it, it is like, it's that word. Don't, don't say that word. And that is the word that will take you back there, you know. Um, but there's a greater part of me that's always been in me, that resilient part of me that, that goes forward. Where does and that come from, you think? I suspect some of that comes from uh, from my upbringing. I, th- I think um, my my father worked in industrial relations, and he had a very strong sense of fair play. And I often he- heard him talk about things, and I saw him intervene in things at school that he thought were unfair. So he would go to the school and go, "That's not okay." So perhaps from that, um, but some of it goes back to when I was. A girl at school, I was very friendly with an Aboriginal girl and so she had been away from school for some time and I had a principal, mother superior at school, who was fearsome and everyone was terrified of her and um, she was out on parade telling everybody about this girl being away and that she was only at school because of our generosity and I remember thinking at the time, that's not very nice to say that. Anyway. So this day I could see her coming up through the creek. So I saw like, you know, Gemma's gone, quick, quick, come up now. Anyway, the, the um, mother superior walked along the corridor and she saw her in the classroom. She dismissed the lay teacher and said, just go to the staff room. She pulled this girl out in front of the class and then proceeded to berate and how, uh, you know, she hasn't turned up and, and how how generous they were in allowing her to be there and blah, blah, blah. She then turned her around with her back to the class, pulled her uniform up and started to whack into her backside oh, with God. a blackboard ruler. Not a little ruler, but a big blackboard ruler. And she was like really getting going to town on this girl. And so it was like a shocking thing to watch when you're yeah. just like a 14-year-old girl and all of the class were and everyone was crying and upset. And something in me, the stubborn bitch in me, awoke. And as a skinny little 14-year-old girl crying, I stood up and I grabbed Sister Gemma's arm and said, if you hit her again, I'm going to hit you. Oh, like as if, you know, (laughs) one swipe of her bare paw and I would have been toast. But it challenged her. She stopped, she put the the ruler down and she walked away. Wow. But it was one of those moments of realising, not knowing it. But that was incredibly unjust, and I knew it. You know, I couldn't have articulated social justice to you as a 14-year-old girl, but in my heart I knew this is wrong, the way you've spoken about her, the way you've treated her is wrong. You and, wouldn't and do this. And humiliated her to, in front of so many exactly, people. Exactly. You would not have done this to any other girl in the class. You've done this to her because she was an Aboriginal girl. So I think some of it came from that. Some of it perhaps also came from my, my mum had a mental illness, and my dad, whilst he wasn't the Catholic, he was always on committees. And dad always looked for a way to have mum included. 
even though he knew people were uncomfortable, he would always volunteer, paddle look after the cake stall. And I can recall hearing my father in the kitchen walking mum through things. And she'd be starting to get wound up and anxious and not want to go. And he'd be saying, it's fine, Pat. Now so-and-so will be working with you on the first shift. Talk to her about so-and-so. Talk to her about this. So he kind of helped her through that. So I sense that it comes from those kinds of things that I grew up and saw. And sometimes, you know, when you're a child, you see things, you hear things. And it's not till many years later that you realise the impact that something has had on you. So I, I sense some of it comes from that. But I think my own inner knowing tells me that it came from, it came through the rape. That this will sound strange, but in many ways that was the greatest thing that happened to me, was the making of me, because it made me realise I got through that. And it was that knowing that I could get through this that helped me get through all of the challenges. It was that that, that helped me get through that knowing I can do this. If I can get through that, I can get through this. You're not going to beat me. You've used meditation as a really big part yeah. of your life. It has been. Yeah. yeah. What got you into it? Or I think was it because it you? of the rape, I was looking for peace. I wanted to find something that let that go of me. So I was looking in spiritual paths. So long before we came here, I'd ventured and done all sorts of things and you know, gone to things in Brisbane and haunted the bookshops of Mackay, read all sorts of stuff. Um, and I, I see, clearly see that, that I was looking, I was searching for peace, searching for a way to rid myself of that, to see myself um, as not damaged goods. Until one day, it was really interesting, I had gone all the way to India to a guru, to an ashram. I, I was yes, I was stayed for four weeks or six weeks or something in an ashram, and there was a day when I actually, literally, was at the feet of the guru, asking for a spiritual name, which I got, and it was only you know when I went back home, and had some clear insights into things that I had seen and the perfection of things. And it was many years later I read a book by Neil Donald Walsh that turned my life around in that I read, he was telling a story about little souls and there's this new little soul in heaven and it's over, he overheard two old souls talking about forgiveness. And the little soul's bounding around. It's going, what's forgiveness? What's forgiveness? Tell me about forgiveness. And so the old soul says, well, I tell you what, I'll take you down to work with me and I will let you have an opportunity to learn forgiveness. So I keep reading. And then it's the night before the soul, the old soul and the little soul are about to leave for earth. And the old soul looks to the little soul and says, when I come to you and I do something so horrible to you, will you remember me? And in that moment, I realised the perfection of my life. I realised that those three men had simply played a part. They were the, the perpetrator. And I had chosen to be the victim for so long until that moment when I remembered. And in that moment, I quietly said, thank you. You played your part so well. And I played mine so well. And now I move on. And in that moment, it was the most strange thing 
I got up that morning with my shadow of fear and I went to bed without it. I no longer felt that fearful. It's not to say it can't still be triggered. It can. But it doesn't come up in that absolutely overwhelming, fearful way. It was just a beautiful moment of let go and realise the perfection. So it may seem strange, but I am grateful for what happened because it showed me just how strong I really am, that I could get through that on my own with no support, with no one to talk to, with no one to help. So I'm grateful for what I learned. Would I like to have learned those lessons another way? Hell yeah. Yeah. You know, but that's <laughs> but the that's way that I... shaped you. Yes, that the is the way that I'd today. agreed to that lesson. So I can't blame anyone or be angry about it. I agreed that I would learn this lesson about forgiveness in this way. And so I did forgive. It doesn't mean I've forgotten. No. You never forget. But I have forgiven and see that, yep, you played your part. Thank you. And you still made that choice, but to go down that path Mm. and do the things that you've done in your life and be the person you are, you could have chosen to go down a completely different path. I could have been defined by that moment and still be defined by it. And off the rails, as as they say, and and a complete... But you Mm. chose... I chose not to be. I chose... Yeah. I chose to hang on to the visions that I had at the time, which was that I will finish my studies. I'm going to be a great drummer. I'm going to play. I'm going to continue. I'm going to be a mother. I'm going to be a great mother. I'm going to get my sons. Yeah. Yeah. Very powerful. Thank you. Thank you. I hope you have enjoyed the first part of our chat with Jo Lynham. She has plenty more stories to tell, so please stay tuned for part two. BRAVE is jointly funded by the Commonwealth and Queensland governments under the Disaster Recovery Funding Arrangements. This podcast is produced by Damien Lawarden.